Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, pandemic lessons learned for data and identity management. We really need as a federal government to identify one organization who's responsible for pulling together all of these different pieces. On the last day of the fiscal year, not everything on Capitol Hill is broken. Despite the fact that Everything seems to be not working in the Congress, whether it's needs for the CR, debt limit, uh, infrastructure bill, and other types of bills that are out there. The NDA is working. And GSA's Sonny Hashmi on the big money flowing from the Technology Modernization Fund. The awards that have been decided and that have been announced today go towards exactly the areas where the government needs most help. It's Thursday, September 30th, 2021, the last day of the fiscal year. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. A new program to create a cyber workforce rotational program is one step closer to reality. The Federal Rotational Cyber Workforce Program Act would let industry cyber workers join the government for set periods of time and vice versa. The Senate's considering a matching version of the bill that has passed the House. The Commerce Department, the Pentagon, the Transportation Department, and NASA will partner on a new initiative to locate objects in space. The Office of Space Commerce at the Commerce Department will host the Open Architecture Data Repository. The Interim Chief Data Officer at Commerce, Tom Beach, says the repository came out of work from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Seven new awards from the Technology Modernization Fund are official today. John Hewitt-Jones is Managing Editor at FedScoop, writing about the awards at fedscoop.com. John, welcome. What do we know about the awards that just have come out today from the TMF Fund? Uh, thanks, Francis. Yeah, this is the latest round in um, in funding to come out after TMF received um, an additional billion dollars as part of the American Rescue Plan um, earlier this year. So we know that um, GSA is by far the large largest recipient of funding in this um, package of awards. It's been given $231.4 million to spend on various projects, um, a couple of which are focused on improving zero trust. That's a big push at the moment following the Biden administration's cybersecurity executive order earlier this year. The seven awards also give $50 million to DHS for a project relating to modernization of an IT system used at the border of Mexico. Um, the Department of Education has also received $20 million, again, for zero trust. So it's, it's kind of um, a, few, a few measures across the board, really, a total of $311 million um, awarded. And the majority of these projects are focused on improving cybersecurity measures, rolling out the, uh, the adoption of zero trust architecture, um, across agencies, which is certainly a big, a big theme at the moment. What is important to pay attention to, do you think, as these programs start to roll out and as we start to see work get done with the money that the board is awarding? I know officials within government are very keen to kind of get more of a sense of how the repayment process will play out for these awards. It's all very well agencies being able to tap the fund for money, but the terms of repayment are super crucial here. It's important that there's kind of return on capital expenditure, but it also has to be efficient for, for agencies um, and, and for the for the fund itself. Um, there's definitely, you know, I was speaking to a few people this morning, there's definitely been a big push to try and um, uh, make the repayment terms more flexible to give more flexibility 
which was you know, announced earlier this year by, by GSA. They made it clear that where possible, award recipients will receive, um, in certain circumstances, they may be able, the, the terms of repayment may be more flexible. John Hewitt-Jones writing about the new TMF awards at fedscoop.com. Thank you very much. Thanks, Francis. You can read more about the TMF awards and more on these headlines and others at fedscoop.com. And the head of the Federal Acquisition Service, GSA, Sonny Hashmi, will tell you more about the TMF awards later in the program. The lineup's filling up for Cyber Week already, October 18th through the 22nd. CyberScoop has more than 40 events on the calendar already for the Cyber Festival. Lots of top leaders from tech, education, and government will be there, both digitally and in person. You can learn more and sign up now at cyberweek.us. The Pandemic Response Accountability Committee says federal, state, local, and tribal agencies have spent 87% of the $150 billion the CARES Act put into the Coronavirus Relief Fund. Some of the problems in getting that money out the door are common to other government programs. Dave Mader is Civilian Sector Strategy Officer at Deloitte. He's former controller at the Office of Management and Budget. Dave, it's good to see you, my friend. You and your colleagues at Deloitte are writing about program integrity. What is the definition of program integrity, Dave, as you see it? Welcome. As welcome, um Francis, I appreciate the opportunity to, to be with you today. When we think about program integrity, we, we think about sort of the breadth of elements that we think constitute uh, solid governance and performance for federal agencies and how they uh, implement various programs, whether they're federal programs that are direct to citizens or programs that, that flow down through state and local governments. And we stepped back and, and looked at basically the experience that the U.S. government has had over the last 20 years, four different administrations around, you know, crises that we have faced, whether it's Katrina, 9-11, Sandy, the 2008 recession, and sort of reflected on what are best practices that we've seen over, over that period of time. And now how can we inculcate that into federal programs going forward. There are five elements that you and your colleagues write about, and there's one in particular I want to ask you about because we've talked about it uh, a number of times before, Dave, and it's not been common among all of those, I'm going to say five, and add the pandemic to those four that you just listed, and that's enterprise risk management. The other four are internal controls, identity management, payment integrity, relief management, and those are all important too. But the enterprise risk management piece, I think, is important because it hasn't been common in the federal government, at least among those five uh, 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 crises that you mentioned. What's the change that you've seen over the past 20 years in the way the government applies enterprise risk management or the fact that it even does it at all? Well, I, you know, as you and I have talked in the past, um, when I was at OMB, um, one of the um, initiatives that we began working on and implemented in the July of 2016 was was the establishment of an enterprise risk management program across the federal government. It's been it's been five years now since since the implementation of that requirement, and through now three administrations, which I which I think is really positive, in that. Uh, three administrations have seen the the benefit and the merits of, of the federal government having a structured program so that agencies actually can address risks, whether it's a risk um, with regard to IT security, but in this case, 
in the case of the pandemic and the observations of the PRAC and GAO, it's what what are the risks that are inherent in, in these relief programs, whether, again, whether it's direct payments, whether it's grants, whether it's loans, whether it's, you know, unemployment insurance. So we've seen uh, agencies in the last year since the pandemic uh, relief programs have been put in place actually use their risk structure and their risk protocols to help agencies distribute the funds, recognizing the urgency, whether it was the economic emergency or the health emergency, to make judgments to distribute the funds in a way that minimizes um, improper payments. Are agencies using enterprise risk management frameworks in the way that you intended when you started that effort, Dave, and where they're not, are there common themes among where they're going wrong? I'm very pleased with with how the federal community, uh, not only the administrations, the political appointees, but the career individuals who have who have stepped up to implement these programs have moved from sort of the concept that we released back in July of 2016 and now have embedded it in how agencies do their day-to-day business, starting with their strategic plan, but basically flowing down to the mission programs and their operational responsibilities. You and your colleagues list a number of next steps here, conducting an enterprise risk assessment, designing and implementing controls, uh, conducting a fraud risk assessment, developing a strategy for identity management, surveying the relief programs. The identity management piece is potentially the most challenging, especially in an environment like we've seen over the last 18 months where money has to go out fast. And the government has really struggled with identity management. What would you like to see agencies or the government as a whole do to make sure that the people that are getting the money are really the people that should be getting the money? I think one of the lessons learned from COVID has been how we identify and authenticate individuals and organizations for receipt of federal funds. And there are a variety of different agencies that have taken a different approach. We feel strongly, and and I think GAO feels the same way, that we really need as a federal government to identify one organization who's responsible for pulling together all of these different pieces. We've learned through the distribution of the funds how third-party data sources can benefit organizations in ensuring the identity of individuals before payments are made to them. Um, I think now with those lessons learned from the implementation of the CARES Act, that we actually now can step back, you know, OMB, Treasury, the SIGI, the PRAC, all of those communities sit down and decide going forward, how do we put in place the kind of structure, organizational responsibility, and frameworks that can be used not only across the federal government, but as I mentioned, with some programs like unemployment insurance that are, that are state-managed programs, where we could also help the states in the distribution of funds at their level as well. Uh, final thought, Dave, you and your colleagues write, an agency should be proactive in engaging the Office of Management and Budget, the Government Accountability Office, and the Inspector General community. Did you put that in there because you don't see enough of that, or is it just a reminder to keep doing what you're doing? I think that with the arrival of the Biden administration, there's been a uh, concerted effort on the part of OMB, the PRAC, GAO, the organization that, that uh, Gene Sperling is, is managing for the president, have all come together, I think, in a very cohesive way 
to work together, you know, for the common good, for for getting the relief out and minimizing to the extent we can improper payments. So I'm, I, I think it's a model going forward for future administrations. Dave Mader, great insight as always. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Francis. You can find a link to that risk management work in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Coming up on today's Daily Scoop podcast, seven awards today from the Technology Modernization Fund. The head of the Federal Acquisition Service, TMF board member Sonny Hashmi, tells you more later in the show. The Daily Scoop podcast's lineup is available ahead of time on Twitter. You can follow the show at Daily Scoop Pod. The House's version of the National Defense Authorization Act includes a lot of things that weren't in the Biden administration's Defense Department budget request. House authorizers included new hardware, new spending for IT, and some things that didn't even have to do with defense. Bill Greenwald is non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He's former deputy undersecretary of defense for industrial policy and former senior staff member at the Senate Armed Services Committee. Bill, welcome. It's great to talk to you again. So I did this this morning. I googled National Defense Authorization Act 2021, and I saw all kinds of stuff in there this year that, as I mentioned, doesn't have anything to do necessarily with defense. Is that peculiar to this year, or is this something that we see every year and I just hadn't paid attention? Bill, welcome. Happy to be here, and thanks for inviting me on the show. Yes, the, you know, the, 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 the NDAA always has so many different things on it. And really, that's a, uh, 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 an example of why it's so successful. This is how Congress works when the process is allowed to, to move forward and the regular order, order uh, is, is, uh, works. So this is Congress rolling up its shirt sleeve and legislating on what it feels is important. Uh, your former body is still acting on its NDAA for 2021, uh, 2022, excuse me. Uh, House has passed its version, as I mentioned. Um, what stands out to you in what each body will likely wind up approving? What's significant in your view about this year's bills? Uh, the, the significance is in that they've increased the top line. Uh, they are... Uh, looking at uh, adding uh, uh, women to the uh, uh, selective service system and being eligible for the draft. Uh, there are a lot of uh, number of provisions on sexual assault and reform of the uniform military justice system. But there's also equally the things that are not in there. The House went through a number of amendments on the floor that really showed how bipartisan the support is for this bill. In other words, and there were a number of progressive amendments to take funding away, to not fund nuclear, uh, uh, you know, uh, to not conduct operations in Iraq and Yemen, which all failed. And so there is this, 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 this collective bipartisanship that is working in the House, and I presume will work in the Senate as well. Uh, that, I think that's what surprised me the most about this year. This was supposed to be the year that uh, funding was going to go down, all these things were going to happen, and none of it happened. Uh, at least on the House side, and I certainly don't see any indication that things are going to change in the Senate. No, absolutely. And, and, and so despite the fact that everything seems to be not working in the Congress, whether it's needs for the CR, debt limit, uh, infrastructure bill, and other types of bills that are out there, the NDA is working. And it wor is working exactly the way Congress has intended and has worked for the last 61 years on, on the Defense Authorization Bill. And I think that's something for all the members to be proud of, 
the thing I'm afraid of is that's working too well, that something's got to go wrong in the next couple of months. <laughs> right. We're going to jinx it by talking about how great it's going. Um, the, I, and thank you for confirming my number. I, I thought that this was going to be 62 years in a row if everything goes according to schedule. I'm, I'm just uh, uh, quoting uh, uh, Co Congressman uh, Smith that, that in his latest press release, so I, I'm hoping that's right. Yeah, oh, I, I have a hard time imagining that the chairman of the House would get the number wrong, so <laughs> I, think we're conf I think we can be confident in moving forward on that number. Um, what do we know, if anything, yet about a timeline for the Senate side on the NDAA bill? I, I keep hearing that they're going to try to bring this up uh, as early as they can. Obviously, the debt uh, limit is, is going to be problematic, but I can also see that they can actually bring the both of them up and, and work that in the next week or so. Uh, you know, they are going off on recess on Columbus Day. I think they'd like to be finished, but that you know they may may not be, depending upon the, the amendments go. They'll conference more than likely all the way through Thanksgiving and 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 bring the bill up more than likely uh, before the uh, in December before the Christmas recess, and that's I think where where we'll see a, a successful uh, a passage. That fits the timeline that we've seen the last couple of years, probably tighter than people in the Pentagon would like, but it's not. It's certainly no comp uh, no comparison to the the budget process and how far off track that is. I mean, we, we, it appears we're getting a CR today. It's going to take the government through the beginning of December and we have no idea what happens after that. It sounds like at least we have an idea of what will happen and, and the, the cadence, the pacing of it for the NDAA. Yeah. The key thing with the NDAA is if they decide to wait for the appropriations bill and then adjust their numbers to that. And that could actually tie it to the appropriators. And frankly, if they do that, they may not get a bill till February, March, or so on. I expect that they will de de decouple the bills and try to pass the authorization bill first. And the numbers won't be right, but that's okay. You wrote recently about the budgeting process and how broken it is and potential solutions to fix it. What in that applies to the process that we're looking at right now, Bill? Well, the, the, the key thing in, in is the need for budget flexibility. And un, unfortunately, the authorizers can uh, try to put in as much budget flexibility and ideas as, as, as they can, but it's really up to the appropriators to, uh, to, to really validate that. And so far, the appropriators have been not been willing to give up uh, uh, and allow the department is, uh, really any flexibility. And so that essentially creates a, a, a time problem in which to start anything new takes about three years to get through the process. And you can't buy AI or information technology like that. Bill Greenwald, great to have you on as always. Thanks very much, my friend. Thanks, appreciate it. You can read more about the NDAA in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, coming on Friday's program, New Technology for the Intelligence Community. The Chief Information Officer of the IC, Michael Waschel, is here. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts Friday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. As you learned earlier in the program, seven new awards from the Technology Modernization Fund are official today. Sonny Hashmi is the Commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service at the General Services Administration. He is former CIO at the agency, too, and he's a 2021 FedScoop 50 selection in the Golden Gov category. Sonny, welcome. These awards mean what in the grander scheme of technology modernization across government? Thanks for coming on, Sonny. 
Thank you, Francis, for having me on. Um, uh, thanks for the question. Uh, we're very, very excited about this new future uh, of the Technology Modernization Fund. It's obvious over the last many years that uh, modernizing uh, government technology is a, um, is a focus for all administrations over the last many years. We know the value that uh, investments, the right investments in technology can lead, and we also know the need. Uh, not only do agencies have a continual need to uh, develop better digital services, uh, to, to uh, render better services and support to the citizens that expect it, uh, but the last couple of years have shown what the vital role technology plays in, uh, in, in continuing the mission of the government. And so, um, you know, we are very, very excited uh, of, the, of, of the commitment that Congress has shown in uh, additional investments and continued investments in the Technology Modernization Fund. Of most importance is uh, how quickly uh, both the OMB, GSA, and other, other parts of the federal government have come together to build a process and analysis uh, capability to really make sure that the investments are going towards a greater need. So as you will see in the coming days, uh, the, the awards that have been decided and that have been announced today uh, go towards exactly the areas where the government needs most help in advancing zero trust in agencies uh, to combat many uh, modern, many emerging uh, threats in the cybersecurity landscape, but as well as uh, investing in uh, shared services where government can come together, pool its buying power, and actually drive better results for the American people than agencies can do by themselves. And so this is just the tip of the iceberg. We have more uh, work uh, pending, as you know, that, uh, you know, we have uh, the, the Technology Modernization Fund PMO, as well as the, as the board, is considering uh, many additional uh, uh, proposals that have come to the table. And over time, we're excited to announce many additional exciting projects that are going to be uh, embarked upon. So uh, you will see that uh, through these investments, we're going to be up-leveling the cybersecurity posture of the federal government leading agencies to develop better, more innovative, and citizen-centric uh, solutions and products, and uh, continue to drive the um, uh, IT modernization um, uh, uh, progress across the federal government. I'm very, very excited about that progress. Uh, my colleague John Hewitt-Jones writes on fedscoop.com this afternoon, $311 million in total to agencies for these projects. Uh, and he writes, the board did not reveal the repayment terms for each project. What do we know, at, if anything yet, what can you say about what the repayment terms will be? This is something that has become very attractive to agencies now uh, because the repayment uh, flexibility that exists today. Absolutely. And as, as we announced uh, a few months ago, uh, our focus uh, as we move forward with the TMF is going to be to find the right balance between creating value, business value for the American people, and making sure that the fund stays solvent. And uh, there are many paths to making that, that, that happen. Uh, previously, some of the very strict repayment terms hindered uh, agencies' interest in, uh, in, in, in leveraging this investment to, to drive modernization. As we know that not all investments lead to cost savings. In fact, some investments are necessary for improving the cybersecurity posture for agency operations. Others lead to better citizen outcomes. And so uh, the board has, has, uh, has developed a very comprehensive set of, uh, set of uh, new uh, methods to identify where investments are necessary, even if full repayment is not the, the only priority in that particular investment. Uh, so while, while I can't speak to individual agreements for each of the, one of the investments, you will see that as we move forward, it's going to be a balanced approach uh, where we, we need to balance the benefits that are gen being generated through these investments against the need to keep the fund uh, solvent. 
And this is exactly in line with how private sector invests in, uh, in innovation, whether it's VC firms or whether others, uh, when they invest in innovation, it's not just to recoup dollar per dollar uh, the investment back, but it's also to create new, gener new, new value, new companies, new ideas and take them forward. And so that's how the TMF should always have been working. We're very excited that we were able to create a system and an environment where we can balance both sides of that equation. And uh, ultimately, the, the goal is always to drive more value to the American people. And this is, the this is the right model to do so. I understand you can't speak to the individual agreements, but can you uh, tell me whether there are the agreements are in place for each of these awards, I imagine? Absolutely, yeah. So as part of the, uh, part of the investment review process, that agreement is actually reached before the investment is made. And that, that the agreement is made uh, in collaboration with the agency that is requesting that investment, as well as a review by the TMF board, uh, and ultimately signed off by both the GSA administrator as well as the OMB uh, federal CIO. You're in, an, you're in an interesting spot, Sonny, because you come back to an agency that you spent a lot of time at as deputy CIO and then as the chief information officer. Now you're there in an acquisition spot and obviously have a spot on the TMF board. What kind of insight did that give you when you came back into the agency uh, you're working basically with your successor, David Shive, uh, on a lot of these issues, I imagine. And, and I wonder what advantage you think you might have, what special insight you might have taking an acquisition job with the extensive background you have in tech. Absolutely. And, and I'm glad you asked that question. I think too often people think of acquisition as a giant that lives on a hillside and it does its <laughs> own thing. And it's not, and it shouldn't be, right? Acquisition, smart acquisition, modern acquisition is at the heart of mission delivery. And so much of mission delivery today relies on technology, smart technology investments. And so I do believe that, you know, we need to start thinking differently about modern incremental um, yeah, strategies that allow agencies ultimately to deliver on mission outcomes, right? That's what acquisition's goal is. It's not just to sign a contract or go through a cycle and, and uh, survive protests. It's to really deliver outcomes that agencies need to, to need to drive, and so you know when you live your entire life and your career in technology, you you do develop a sense of the investments we make, the efforts that we embark on, ultimately need to drive mission value, and that's the same same kind of sense that I continue to bring into my role now. The second part of that is also that uh, acquisition today, modern acquisition, is so reliant on data that it's not a paperwork problem anymore. People think that acquisition is people trading paper with each other, reviewing proposals and so forth. And what it actually is, is to really understand markets, really understand solutions that exist and connecting the dots between market solutions and business outcomes that agencies are trying to drive. And that relies on data. We uh, are so dependent on not just technology systems and uh, that uh, automate processes, but also the data that we collect along the way to make smart investments, to make smart investments in our efforts and resources, to, to reach out to the right communities, to lift up small businesses that historically have not had opportunity to work in the, uh, with the federal government, and to identify new and emerging opportunities and threats that government has to get in front of. All of that requires us to collect data, analyze it, and then ultimately use that data to drive better outcomes. And so I'm very excited about this role because while it's an acquisition role, and I'm very, I have the benefit of uh, working with the best acquisition shop in the entire federal government, I, will, I have no hesitation in saying that, who understand both the regulations, the rules, the, op, uh, the, the, the opportunities and the gaps in the, in the environment. We have an opportunity now to really think about this in all environment from the ground up with data being the cornerstone on how decisions get made. 
uh, imagine a buyer having access to real-time data on pricing, on risk, on alternatives, uh, on markets, and a seller, a, a vendor, having real-time access to how their pricing compares to their competitors' pricing, how their solution stacks up against other solutions in the marketplace, and how they can differentiate. That's the environment we want to create. And so I do believe that I bring some uh, capability in that space. I have uh, a team that is, uh, again, the best acquisition team in the federal government. And together, we can actually uh, achieve, uh, achieve that kind of step function improvement in this entire process. So I'm very excited to be here. And uh, for the first time, it's uh, uh, the, the, the direct line between the work that we do and the mission that we support is so clear. Uh, the impact that FAS creates is, is unlike any other part of the federal government that I'm very, very proud to be part of this organization. And I'm excited to, to see what the next many years will bring. All right. I'd be derelict in my duties if I didn't ask you before you go about Polaris and Oasis, the, the follow-on to Oasis, uh, the Services Mac. What's happening with both of those quickly, Sonny? Absolutely. So uh, with Services Mac, what we've uh, learned is that uh, the, the, the current Oasis program has been very successful. Uh, it's successful in driving great mission outcomes for, for agencies, as well as it's been successful for many vendors in the private sector who have been part of that program. We want to build on that success and expand it. Some of the areas that we want to bring innovation into that space, we realize that the services space is, is, is growing at unprecedented value. Government agencies need access to expertise and innovation like they've never had to before. And so we want to expand in a much more innovative way how government can access those services, but most importantly, how we can actually expand opportunity for businesses that were not part of the prior, the, 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 the prior regime. So we want to be uh, innovative in many different ways uh, by, by taking the price competition conversation away from the contract level to the task order level. We believe that it will open up new opportunities for companies that were not able to participate before. Similarly, we want to create an environment where there's different pools of expertise, both for large businesses as well as small and uh, specialized businesses, so that agencies can make those decisions at the task order level. If something needs to be it can be set aside for small businesses. They should have the same ability to do so in one contract vehicle that otherwise they will have to kind of shop between different contract vehicles. We also believe that will reduce the burden on the private sector. Private, previously, uh, private sector companies have had to have a significant amount of effort to go on multiple contracts, to maintain those contracts, to be able to decide which ones are worth their effort in BD dollars. We want to reduce that burden. Once you get on, on the services Mac, you should have the ability to play in all the pools that you're eligible to play in. If you're a small business, you can play for small business dollars as well as full and open dollars. So we believe that the new strategy will reduce the burden for the private sector, open up more opportunity for more players, and have continuous ability to come on board with the, uh, uh, come on board the vehicle instead of having been locked out for five years or 10 years. As, long as, uh, as soon as you get become eligible based on the evaluation criteria, you can get on board. And so all those things will lead to, I think, a much more thriving marketplace. Um, change is hard. We want to make sure that we communicate along the way. We partner with the industry along the way. We'll have a lot of industry days. We'll work very closely with our agency partners as well. We're very excited about some of the innovation that's going to be baked into the services, Mac. And, uh, and we'll, we'll share more details as, uh, as time goes on. Sonny, I appreciate you joining me today. Thanks very much. It's great to see you. Thank you, Francis. Great to be here.
You can read more on the TMF Awards and all of the topics that Sonny talked about in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thank you for doing so. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together every day. The entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The CIO of the intelligence community, Michael Washell, is on the Friday edition of the Daily Scoop podcast. Until then, I'm the host, Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. <laughs>